You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, the local watering hole for all things geeky. And I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing. And with me, as she is always, Mrs. One-Up herself, Christy Morris. Yeah, I was here before it was cool, and I do it the old-fashioned way, and uh, I change my hair color every week, so I hope that's okay. That's okay, I have vegan powers. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I can defeat anyone. I thought it was three strikes and you were out, though. What? 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 Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, we're going to have so much fun this week as uh, we talk about the 10th anniversary of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And this is, I mean, it's, it, it can't believe it's been 10 years since this movie first came out. And so um, make sure, though, uh, before we dive into the show, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere podcasts can be had. Uh, give us a star rating and review if you're over on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show grow. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. There's a listeners-only discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. Trek.fm, where you can also go to the contact section and send Christy and I an email. And really want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Uh, really appreciate them supporting the show through Patreon. And you can go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm, see how you can be part of our team. It takes a lot to put this network on each and every week, and we definitely need your support. And so, again, uh, patreon.com is the place where you can uh, give a little bit every month and make sure that all of the shows keep coming to you here on the network. And we got some great changes in store for you recently, too. So much happening here. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, Christy, uh, this wasn't something that I had put on the outline, but I was really interested uh, to see because I wondered, you know, obviously this is a comic book movie in the sense that it is based off a comic book. And mm-hmm. um, and it was a pretty popular comic book by the time that the movie was going to get made already. Uh, and so I was wondering, is this a comic book that you read before the movie at all? Or did you read it after the movie at all? Interesting question, because um, usually I was the person that would read the source material before seeing the film adaptation of something. But I just never got around to either one, to either reading it or to watching the movie until the last couple of years. Um, so, it, which is funny for me because I don't know about you, but especially around the time of like 2007 when Juno came out, I was a pretty big Michael Sarah fan at the time, like a lot of people were. What about you? Yeah, um, I... You know, I've still actually never read the comic and, and part of that, not because I wouldn't want to or anything. Mm-hmm. I just have never gotten around to it. Um, but, you know, I like you, I was a huge Michael Sarah fan. And, uh, you know, with with uh, Juno and, of course, Arrested Development. And uh, mm-hmm. then he would go on and be in Superbad and all those kind of things. You know, he's 
such a funny actor. And so absolutely this movie, you know, captured my attention and, uh, and it, you know, and I, I worked at Barnes and Noble, so I'd seen the comic and everything. Nah. I was well aware of it. it's kind of like manga style. Um, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's by a Canadian author. So, you know, it's, it's very funny to also see kind of a combo, a manga type comic, you know, not coming from, you know, one of the Asian com- countries like Japan where yeah. manga is so huge. And so, um, but no, I, I never got a chance to, to get to read the comic. And I would like to, especially after learning that, you know, he hadn't even completed the sixth, uh, you know, the author, Brian uh, Leo Malley, he hadn't actually completed his, his sixth volume uh, when they were doing the movie. And he had kind of given some notes on that. So um, it would be really interesting to see how it compares and how much they brought in, which... Speaking of adapting the comic, I thought was really interesting. I was doing a lot of reading, just the background of this, and I was really impressed by how much the artist and creator of Scott Pilgrim was involved in the making of the movie, which may be one of the reasons I think that it just turns out so well. I mean, and and I think obviously you put him with Edgar Wright, who is known for being a very um, energetic and I would say uh, fascinating director willing to try and do things that are very different. You know, I mean, he had done Shaun of the Dead and, and mm-hmm. he, you know, he would do Hot Fuzz and yes. those type of movies, you know. So great films, but, you know, again, kind of very uh, having their own unique style. And I think you put these two guys together and, and you found the perfect people then to help adapt this to the screen. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that to you in particular about Wright's style, because, man, when I discovered Hot Fuzz, which was around the time that this came out, um, was the first time I had seen it, it was like mind blown, just so different, and really enjoying that director style, um, and and going for kind of a risky way of filming something. And so that's what I really felt here too, because they're going along with making it um, just like a comic book spread on a screen, you know, with the um, thought bubbles or the, you know, words appearing as the sound is happening on the screen. Um, So I think that that makes it really interesting and I'm glad that they kept it true to that manga style. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right in the fact of it not shying away from the over the top nature of comics in general and Mm -hmm. then not, not shying away from then the over the top nature of everything that you know, O'Malley was pulling from, which is manga and, of course, video games. And so you put this together. It's a mixture of like a video game comic book movie all in one. And there's something really special about the fact that it never um, it never shies away from the absurdity. Right. It's just and which which is what makes it so perfect that it's like absurdly glorious as a film because of that, um, you know, it has a style that's all its own. And, you know, I would, I'm hard pressed to think of any other comic book movie, honestly, that takes this much risk other than possibly into the Spider Verse, where they really embrace mm-hmm. the idea of we're 
trying to make a comic book type movie feel like you're actually in a comic book. And then, of course, on top of that, video game, too. They meld the two together with with Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And I think, you know, there's just something so beautiful about them not pulling any punches in that respect. And I give them full credit for not trying to water it down whatsoever. And and, and in some ways, just, uh, again, they completely embrace the absurdity, which is what makes this film glorious. Right, like even leaning into... It felt like to me in the first fight with one of the exes, sort of like a scene from Mortal Kombat. And then later they yep. have Wallace yep. say, finish him. And then uh, it, the thing that really caught me off guard as well, my first watch through was even throwing in the Seinfeld riff. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're like, wait, I know that noise. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's definitely over the top, but that suits making something like a graphic novel or a manga or a comic into a visual moving picture, literally. Yeah. I mean, and there is this wonderful kind of fantasy element to it all where, you know, we're, we're based in reality in the sense that we're filming in all of these locations and everything. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but um, but at the same time, we're also not afraid to um, just give this movie this surrealist feeling as well. Uh, and so, again, you're mixing all of these different like styles and genres, like the gritty, you know, Toronto winters with, you know, the crazy surrealist comic book slash video game action mm-hmm. and you know uh, even the, uh, the the dream sequences and the, and the fantasy sweet sequences and stuff it, it also kind of reminded me i don't know if you ever watched scrubs but scrubs yeah. did that a lot as well um back at that time point uh and time period and so um i i really i i think the thing that this movie does the best is that it never apologizes for being outlandish and that's mm-hmm. absolutely perfect or being confusing about what's real and mm-hmm. what's a dream sequence. Like, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think just, yeah, like you said, you meld those together, which is really great. Um, and I also kind of thought it was great, too. You know, uh, you, you from the very beginning, the author of the comic is very involved with the script. You know, he even contributes to, to lines and adding polish. And, and so... And in fact, several of the lines from the script kind of would be later used in the Scott Pilgrim comics because of the the process it took to make this movie. So it's interesting to see how art, you know, uh, not imitated other art, you know, and mm-hmm. what they made the movie actually helped inform the comics later on too. you know, even with some of the character designs. Um, I think if I was reading, if I remember correctly, one of the reading things I saw was that um, one of Envy's outfits actually gets in the comic. Um, so, you know, just things like that just thought were really cool to where it just, this movie feels really special in that way. Like, um, mm-hmm. like they were willing to take the risk. And I think that's, 
It's just not something that we see very often, especially in the comic book movie genre. And then when people take risks big time, you know, they don't always pay off, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think they, they took all the right risks here and, you know, I'll spoil it right in front. I think they all pay off beautifully. Well, I heard it didn't pay off literally in the box office like they it hoped did not. it would. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't. And I, so I guess um, I have a question for you then, you know, as you've seen this movie more recently and then, you know, we watched it again here. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Do you feel like maybe this movie was just too different from the norm and people just weren't ready for it then? And that's why it kind of ends up becoming a cult classic. I think that it's not as much that because there had been some stuff to that point that was in this kind of arena as far as just being that outlandish. Um, But I think that the one thing that makes it difficult for me every time I've watched it is that it comes across generally with the tone that the creator was an angry person. Like I get, that there's these really shining, nice plot moments, but it just feels like overall, and you can tell me if you felt differently, but like with the, the dialogue um, and some of the way that they're framing the character feelings overall, like in, even in spite of the situation that it just feels very negative, um, you know, like the, uh, sort of everything that would have supported the grunge movement and um, being like that hipster kind of person and everything. It just like, I did everything better than the popular crowd and I'm annoyed by all of this. And, you know, yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting, uh, a string to pull on because in some ways, you know, you mentioned they even pull on the Seinfeld riff music, you know, Mm -hmm. and, that's Seinfeld to a T, right? Like, everybody is this kind of deplorable character, and yet we, people enjoyed watching them in some ways, I think, because they could get that side of them out without having to actually be like that. Yeah. Um, or admit that they were like that. And so, um, but as an overall framing for a movie, yeah, maybe maybe audiences just weren't like into that i i don't know it's yeah. it's fascinating because it got good reviews it wasn't like it's one of those things where the movie didn't get good reviews but then became a cult classic later mm-hmm. you know and and so i you know i don't really honestly know what it is about the movie that people wouldn't respond to i do i do think that people might not have been ready for the more artistic nature of this film at the time you know this this film definitely uh, is is a more artistic has more artistic sensibilities in its editing mm-hmm. uh, and and again when we talked about it embracing kind of the fantasy or surrealist moments uh, and not necessarily differentiating those from you know reality quote mm-hmm. unquote in the film that it's all just a part of this strange weird world where video game comic book world is actually real life almost you know right it all bleeds together right right and and i think you know i'm trying to think you know when this movie came out i can't really recall um other films that had really gone this deep into that 
um, well, idea. I do think that's a valid point when you compare it with um, being similar to Into the Spider-Verse, because that is something that now I'm going, oh, yeah, it definitely, because that one really pushed the envelope of how you can bring a comic book to life on a movie screen. And th- obviously, when this came out, it was way prior to Spider-Verse. So I think that that that's part of it. Just for me, it felt like that wasn't possibly as big of a reason for the numbers to be bad as it possibly just feeling like a negative experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. Um, And it's interesting, too, because uh, at this point, the Marvel Cinematic Universe was really, you know, just getting started to um, we're we're in the, the the. the very early stages of all of that, you know. Um, so I don't think as well comic book movies had really had their resurgence. Um, obviously, the Dark Knight trilogy is is happening during this time period. Mm-hmm. But there's something, again, I think there's just something about this that's not quite, you know, people had been going to see like the X-Men movies at that point and kind of expecting one thing from comic book movies, which is almost, you know, comic book movies at, at that point were very like grounded, you know, like the mm-hmm. X-Men movies and then the Dark Knight movies after that really kind of took on this whole idea of realism in the comic book movies, which is kind of funny since they're about comic book characters could never exist in the real world. <laughs> um Whereas this movie takes the complete opposite view of that, which is, no, we're going to make a movie that lives up to everything you read in the comic book, which is basically this is a video game comic book world. There's no reality really to this mm-hmm. in in the, the traditional sense. So, um, and I think it's something to where it makes sense then that this movie has become more and more popular as we've got further, further into comic book movies kind of getting more into the surrealist nature. I mean, when you think about the weird, crazy stuff you do in like a Guardians movie or even, you know, what we got in in Spider-Verse, that kind of stuff where people are really starting to like play again with this idea of what it is. So yeah, that's good. That's a good thought. Um, I wanted to ask you too, because the the film had an original ending uh, that was written for the movie which was that Scott was going to get back together with Knives. Mm-hmm. And then the author of the comic book thought that this ending would kind of dilute Knives' character. And so um, the final book in the series was going to have Scott and Ramona get back together. Uh, and so a new ending was filmed to match the uh the books and 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 that's the the ending even writes as he likes better so um what do you think about that idea would you have liked it if that had been the ending of the movie yeah i honestly i would have liked it better if he ended up with knives because the thing is it ends up feeling like knives is the one that always gets the short end of the stick if he ends up with ramona when she literally never did anything to deserve that. And so it comes across much more positively for Scott if he realizes what he did to hurt Knives and that maybe he was also chasing the wrong person for him and does end up back with Knives. I think that that would have been a stronger ending and a a more positive way to wrap up Scott as a character. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I don't. I, I think I like the ending that's in the movie, um, and partly is just because um, I'm always a little bothered that he's dating a 17 year old, which is illegal. And so, I mean, you definitely um, get the vibe in the beginning that like it's you know that totally one sided needy relationship. Right. Right. Yeah. Which and no I one felt likes. like right. And I kind of so you know. I, I can see then what, what the author is actually saying is that it, he felt like it would dilute Naivis's character because it's almost like she's outgrown that reason that she was with Scott in the first place, which is that mm-hmm. you know he's older and he's cooler, she thinks. And what she's been able to see is that he's just another person like her. He's not any cooler than she is. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so there's growth for both of them because, you know, he gets to play out the whole moment of realizing what he's done to both of them. You know, so I, I I see both sides, and and so I I like this better, but I could understand how that other side could actually work too. And I I'm I'm glad that the actress, you know, Ellen Wong, actually liked this ending better too. You know, if she's mm-hmm. happier with it for her character, then I think that's great. Um, you know, many many times that doesn't get to happen <laughs> for, um, uh, you know, a um an actress to necessarily always be completely happy with where their, uh, you know, character goes. I'm pretty sure see Daisy Ridley. Um, so, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. this, I think I, at least that part makes me happy. So, um, how did you feel about the names though? Of the characters? Yes. Uh, being like, um, knives and envy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's funny because, you know, all of the names, there's a lot of them that are kind of classic comic book character names. Um, you know, like his friend is Wallace Wells, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Evans is Lucas Lee, you know, so you have that, uh, alliteration, which is funny. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. The names of the, you know, like envy, um, and well, and like when you see Natalie's name spelled out, you're like, oh, it could also be like the letter N and the letter V. Because her name right, is Natalie right, V. Adams, exactly. but yeah. calling her Envy, you get why. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, no, I think that there's a lot of cleverness, and that's part of the thing that makes this movie. Uh, and and I'm sure the comic books actually have a lot of charm. Mm-hmm. Is there's a there is a lot of thought I think put into, um, you know, the whole thing. And I think part of that to me was was learning just about how important just the setting of this film is, and the setting of the comic book world as well, which is in Toronto. And the fact that Wright lived in Toronto for a year to get all of this just right so that they would be using all of the same places. Like him and the artist literally written around and where he couldn't remember necessarily, they were taking like the comic book and like, okay, <laughs> was this it? Was this it? Like trying to get everything just right. And I think that that's really important because there's nothing special about the place we're in in the sense of like it doesn't look fantastic it just looks pretty normal yeah everyday suburban slight city feel to it um and but the setting is so important for the look and the feel of the movie which is um it's very based in the music scene that was happening 
in Canada with all of these different bands, you know, that were playing at that point, you know, even some of them work on the film. Um, you know, some of the big ones like uh, you get Radiohead, uh, you get Beck, yeah. you know, you get other uh, bands like that. Um, and so everything is about creating this milieu that this is in. Like you were talking about, it's that kind of grunge, hipster, you know, all of that put into a blender. And I think that's one of the things that really... Um, actually accentuates the movie and its boringness is the fact that all of these places, none of them look particularly exciting or enticing to be in, except for the right. one where they have the big battle with Chris Evans. You know, that's a cool set. The chaos scene. theater. And, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I think that's really I, the setting here and for them to spend so much time to get it right. Uh, and they even rebuilt some of the sets for uh, the uh, stages where they're playing music that don't exist anymore. Um, they mm. rebuilt them from photos so that they would be authentic to the type of places these bands would be playing. And so, like, I, mm-hmm. it, it, again, they do so much work there, but it truly pays off. And I will say that was the best part of it for me was uh, the the music and the vibe of the venues where the band is playing or the living room where they're playing because that was reminding me of my freshman year in college when that was all I did was go to concerts and hang out with my musician friends and stuff like that in these like terrible places like a half pipe in an indoor skate park. So... Yeah, <laughs> it, re- it it reminded me fondly of those days when I went to crappy venues to crappy concerts. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, I think the setting really again it does such a great job with as we're talking about too with the look and the feel of the movie because they ground it in this kind of like, I mean, I don't want to say grungy place, but it does kind of feel like, you know, it's snowy, it's dirty. It doesn't it doesn't feel like the nicest place in the world in the sense that they're playing, like you said, in all of these kind of rundown venues and, you know, um, people aren't living in immaculate homes, you know, I mean, yeah, their bed is on the floor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, so I think all of that plays into then when they kind of burst out into their, you know, video game type scenes, it brings those to life even more because it's a complete juxtaposition with everything mm-hmm. that you've been shown elsewhere in the movie. Yeah, and and that was nice to have that juxtaposition there because otherwise, like you said, it's very drab. There's not a lot of furniture. They're shopping at Goodwill and going to the CD store, which who does that anymore? <laughs> not many people. So, yeah, it does make it more exciting. The other thing I think about this movie that makes it so special is just the amount of people that are in this movie before they really hit it big. Yeah. You know, we have, I mean, Michael Sarah at this point actually is probably one of the most well-known people in the cast mm-hmm. because of what he had had going on with Arrested Development. Yeah. and And so... It's fascinating that he, I mean, and, and my, we were watching this and we we're finishing it up tonight and my wife was like, he's just one of my favorites because his comedic timing is just so good. And he's so great at playing the uber awkward but lovable goofball 
you know, who who doesn't quite know what to say, but mm-hmm. you know, he he really is trying, and he's not trying to be a, a bad guy, or you know, he's just trying to be a, a guy. Honestly, he's just trying to make it, and mm-hmm. he's so perfect for this role. And I I think Wright was absolutely right in seeing in his mind that Scott Pilgrim was always Michael Sarah to him. Yeah, I, I think the casting was spot on, especially with him. Um, I, the one thing that kind of bugs me is, be, especially now after seeing Aubrey Plaza and other things, she's a very one note actress to me. So it was just kind of, oh, well, there's Aubrey Plaza being Aubrey Plaza again. But, you know, otherwise, like generally, I thought Michael Sarah was perfect casting choice for Scott. Um, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is awesome. Period. And then she was great for this role. Um, and I liked Kieran Culkin actually, since I saw him in saved. Yeah. He's, he's just so funny in this role. And I think one of the things that, um, they did absolutely perfectly with the cast is the fact that you, you have all of these great people who can vibe their roles perfectly. You know, again, this is way before Aubrey Plaza hits it big Mm -hmm. with Parks and Rec or anything like that. And so, but she is completely the character in perfection. Like she is Julie Powers and just that person who is just trying to be the cool person by association, you know, um, and, Anna Kendrick completely just kind of being her classic like narcissistic self as well and you know you put that with like somebody like Brie Larson who hadn't been big yet really Allison Pill who hadn't really hit it you know huge Mm -hmm. um you know the only other person in here who is a kind of a name is like Brandon Ralph because he was Superman so and Chris Evans yeah, Chris Evans too. Yeah, I mean he had been in Fantastic Four. I yeah. mean he wasn't Captain America yet. So I mean yeah. his comic book rep wasn't great because well mm-hmm. he was in Fantastic Four, right? So, you know, but hey, he was still hot. It's true. It's very true. But I, I think that's the thing that they f- they find they found all of these incredible people, and what's amazing is that it is a snapshot of all of them before most of them are huge, right? And yet they're perfectly cast in their roles. And I think that's what makes this movie work so well, you know, is that they're everything the characters need to be um, and more, even though some of them have very little screen time. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a testament to the writing, but it's also a testament to the casting of them casting the absolute right people so that you immediately kind of know who these characters are even before you know you really get to see them on on screen and then once you do they just they embody those characters in a way that um leaves no question in your mind as to who this character is supposed to be in this film right like you can read from their facial expression and their wardrobe and the way that their you know body language is moving um exactly what they're feeling in that moment or you know what their character is like um i i really think that the standout to me aside from the two main characters of um scott and ramona is brandon ralph (laughs) 
Yeah, I think, you know, he does such a good job with with playing Todd Ingram and, and the whole, like, vegan thing, which yes. the fact that they're making fun of vegans in that way, because, like, that's one of the jokes about a vegan is that you'll know that they're a vegan within five minutes of meeting them. Right, because and, they'll say it a million times. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and they'll treat you like they're some sort of god compared to you, mm-hmm. which, again, is hilarious, that whole thing. Um. I just I love that. Um, I also love that they they make a joke about it being science about why you know he has these powers, but then he doesn't actually know what's vegan and what's not vegan really. Right, and the <laughs> vegan just, police come and take his hilarious. vegan card. Yeah. Oh man, so so good. And then you know I love that May Whitman had been in you know she had actually been in Arrested Development with Michael Sarah. And played uh, his girlfriend for a couple, a few episodes with Anne, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Jason Schwartzman is so good at playing the swarmy, like, n- nasty, villainy type of guy who thinks he's really, really cool. But really, he's just kind of a turd, you know? Like, Yeah. I, again, like, this cast is just so great. Like, and it's it's the thing that... If any one of these people wasn't right, they would have really hurt the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't feel like there's anyone in the film. Where I'm like, oh, they're not, they're not very good. I don't know. Uh, for the most part, I didn't. But I mean, you and I both kind of feel the same about Brie Larson. Don't really love her. Um, she's good in this role. I think. I mean, to be, I mean, I, you know, she doesn't have a big role, but I no. think she does a pretty good job of playing the, um, the type of girl that would l- leave Scott for the record deal. Yeah. You know, and, and the, and to be famous. Um, it just sounded is, like it was someone else's voice, I guess is what was it's weird actually to me. her. I'm pretty sure. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, it sounded too yeah, she high can pitched. Actually sing. So, <laughs> um, yeah, she sings on Instagram. She'll okay. play the car- guitar and sing. So, yeah. um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've I've also uh, she was really good in a movie called uh, The Spectacular Now. Hmm. Uh, okay, which is fantastic movie. Um, love, love, love that film. Uh, she's very good in that. So she can be a great actress. And, of course, she won an Oscar for Room, and she was very good in that, too. So I think she has a, a specific range, and she can do it excellently. Mm-hmm. I think here she does everything she's asked to do, and she does it well, and I never, you know, it never bothers me. And it's just yeah. honestly more funny to go back and realize, ah, that's Brie Larson before she was, you know, and people, a name, a, a people, name knew. people knew. Yeah. Yeah. So. But, yeah, I, I would definitely say overall – good strong casting i feel like everyone's characters really work well together and then get across those things like you were saying about um schwartzman playing the seventh x i think that he does a great job of getting across that situation that sometimes you would may have experienced in a relationship where someone just has a hold over you and you don't know why so it was interesting to see them play that out on screen and then how to get past it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's not even something that's on the outline, but I think that's a really good point. And it was something I was kind of thinking of as well when I was finishing the movie, mm-hmm. 
was just that idea because there are many times to which many of us have found ourselves in relationships. We kind of end up, we've ended up again with a person that is not right for us and is not really good for us. And yet we can't keep from going back to them. And I like that this movie plays that out. You know, I mean, they make a joke of it that he literally is inside her head. Right. You know, with the, the, the chip. But there's, um, but there's something to that and as well as making it a tangible thing that we can kind of see and how the the only thing that can break that is somebody being real and vulnerable and loving towards you in a way that is able to destroy that hold finally. Mm-hmm. You know, because they see you for who you truly are and love you for who you are and that's that's kind of i feel like the the point of that whole section of the story with with ramona specifically is that you know scott has been fighting for her this whole time and he really does like her in lesbians her um (laughs) you know um and i think there's there's something that that there's something specifically to that that the movie gets to that that's usually what kind of breaks that cycle for you is you can finally see it for what it is in a way that you could never before, but that's because you're you're having the whole other experience on the good side, finally. Yeah. And when you put them in juxtaposition together again, you're like, well, this one's stupid. Why? You know, like, mm-hmm. so. Well, and um, that they pointed out that the whole time Scott didn't have any self-respect. Yeah. That yep. he was yep. being the same way that knives was about him but -hmm. now it's him toward ramona and he needed to stop and say i need to have some self-respect and realize that if she doesn't want to be with me that maybe i'm not going to die without her right right well and and that 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 self-respect of it's it's not just about me fighting for her it's about me fighting for me right yeah absolutely no I, i like that a lot and I think that really goes into something that I was thinking big time about this movie and, and, and Ramona calls it out and she tells Scott, look, we all have our baggage, you mm-hmm. know, and I thought this was this. It's so interesting to see this movie really talk about the baggage that we carry from previous relationships, but the damage that we can really do to one another, um, especially when we kind of use our relationships for selfish purposes. And we see a lot of the stories that Ramona tells She's using these guys for very selfish purposes. But we every also time. Kind of, yeah, every time. And then we see that same thing play out on, on the guy's side with Scott and the way he's dealing with knives. It's kind of a selfish purpose of he's just trying to get over envy. And, you know, not only that, but knives is kind of very safe. She worships him. She thinks he's, you know, the all that. Mm-hmm. And... That's not necessary. That's not a very healthy place to be either. And so I really thought that the fact that we're going to talk about um, the idea of baggage and the way that this all gets played out in the subsequent relationships and on, then on how that impacts the relationships we're in next um, and can sometimes have a, a detrimental impact on them because we never really truly get over these things was fascinating you know and and it's a great 
to me, it's like, this is a great message for anybody watching this movie, you know, from high school on, because this is something that we kind of get into the cycle of with as humans, and it really hurts all of us. Yeah, it, it's so funny. Like you and I are so on the same page with that in particular. That was the thing that I took away from the movie more than any other point in the themes they explore is that it's about how you let your past affect your present. And that, yes, we all have baggage because that's just life. Like you're going to have experiences and that's going to make you become who you are in the future. But you can choose if you want those exes to affect your current relationship negatively or if you want to let it go and realize you're with someone different. Well, and how so many times it leads to the same thing if you don't. Like all of Ramona's relationships end up where they're dumping them, but it's because she kind of ends up in the same pattern with each one of them and, Mm -hmm. and never finds a way to work out what it is that's causing that. Uh, and, and that's the thing, again, at the end of the movie, you know, when they have the big fight and all of them, Scott's coming to the, you know, Scott learns the power of love. You know, first he realizes that he actually loves her, you know, so there's a, a move in, in emotion. There's a move in, in a realization and an understanding of the actual emotion happening inside of him. But then the next one is self-respect you know Mm -hmm. and all of these things have to be had in a relationship to actually make it work well because if you don't have self-respect in a relationship you're just going to end up being codependent yeah and nobody wants to be in that type of relationship because it's never going to be healthy and you always end up you know in a bad place with that so like the fact that there's like this much depth in this type of movie fascinates me because it really is kind of deconstructing a lot of things that make relationships not work and part of that is and i think we see this in every single part of this movie and you were kind of touching about it earlier everybody's kind of a dick in this movie everybody's treating each other in a way that is is we're kind of using each other Mm -hmm. and it's not until the very end where scott not only learns self-respect but like he apologizes to everybody he apologizes to his band he's Mm -hmm. like you guys are better without me you, you know, he, he's like, young Neil, you now should be known as Neil. He, <laughs> right. he apologizes to Kim, finally, for the way that he's treated her all of these years. You know, he apologizes to both Knives and and Ramona mm-hmm. for, for cheating on both of them and treating both of them badly. Um, and all of those things, it's like, it's so beautiful. And really, it kind of comes down to the, the other thing I saw is like, this movie is all about taking responsibility for our actions and personal responsibility for how we impact not only our life, but the lives around us. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and you see that, like you said, with Ramona, where she every time was using somebody and not dealing with why she felt that way and then just disappearing and moving on to the next one and starting at the beginning again and having the same problem over and over again. And so, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely that. It's that you have to examine yourself and say, what do I need to fix so that I'm not going to keep making the same mistakes? And I think one of the things that we kind of see as well, and I appreciate this, uh, this whole idea of responsibility is that a lot of what we, I think, kind of see in our culture, especially for men, they never transition from being a boy to a man because part of that 
growing up process is taking responsibility for your actions Mm -hmm. and not just blaming other people. And beforehand, you see Scott kind of using the ability to just kind of blame others for what happened instead of, again, taking that responsibility on himself. And I think that the him being able to transition then from boyhood to manhood is really kind of special in this movie. And I feel like it's it's kind of in, in a lot of ways, I feel like somewhat this movie is saying with talking about relationships and responsibility and this kind of stuff, it almost feels countercultural to what we see a lot of times in our entertainment these days where everybody's either just making an excuse or treating each other badly and they get away with it and we applaud them for doing so and here the whole movie is about no these people coming to grips with who they are and you know i thought that the whole responsibility thing really comes down to you know scott facing mega scott which right um you know and instead of fighting they talk it out in the end and like part of that it kind of showed me that that's about the responsibility towards that self-respect of dealing with the issues that you have by having some sort of like maybe therapy. Like, mm-hmm. because what really in reality is playing out between Scott and Mega Scott is Scott dealing with his own inner demons. Yeah. And and one of the best ways to do that is to go talk to somebody to help, you know, a therapist uh, and a good therapist to help you work through some of those things so that you can move past them. Mm-hmm. And... So to me, even though it's not explicit, I think that undertone there is really important. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, because you obviously think that in the moment he's going to have a knockdown, drag out karate fight with the other version of himself, and then they end up talking. I think that's definitely what they're alluding to having happened, and that they're showing this is the way that adults should deal with their inner demons and not avoiding them or avoiding responsibility. So what you're saying is this is the way. (laughs) 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 Yeah. You know, I just, it's so interesting. And, and, and so, um, I don't know. I, I, watching through this movie again, I was just reminded of why I like it so much. And so I'm really interested for you, especially since this is a movie that, you know, you hadn't seen as much until more recently, Mm -hmm. um, where this kind of falls for you ratings wise. So it definitely felt like I took away, uh, a lot more than I thought I would from it. And that is, especially with these big themes, like the relationship baggage and the dealing with responsibility and things like that was really, interesting to get from a comic book or manga based movie i think that like i said the major thing that hurt it to me was that feeling of it being um people that are too cool for school kind of feeling or like really negative and maybe that comes from them all being just kind of characters that are using people as well but um that was the one thing that kind of bothered me and, and made me feel sometimes like the movie dragged was that that negativity. So I knock it down a little for that and I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five, but that I still enjoy it um, overall and think that it's got more pluses than minuses for me. 
Yeah, I it was really interesting rewatching this one um, because I, I found that I think I just love it more than I thought I did. And part of that, I think, was um, this movie is just it's it's so inventive and it it, it doesn't apologize for any part of it. it and it, mm-hmm. it just is what it is unabashedly. And I think there's a real beauty to that in, in the fact that the artistry and creativity of the the thought process of this author really came to screen. And I think Wright was the absolute um, best person to make that happen. And part of that is because of his own creativity. I mean, you uh, if you watch like his movie Baby Driver and the way he meticulously creates scenes so that the beats of the music that will be playing as 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 the songs actually match the actions of what's happening on screen. I mean, this is how meticulous mm-hmm. he is as a director. Um, and he truly is consciously, I think, trying to create art, not just a goofy film. You know, he, he's really trying to push the envelope in fun, cool, inventive, crazy ways like that. So I just really, uh, every time I watch the movie, it grows on me more. And I'm I'm with you in that I feel like the movie is very cynical throughout most of it, but I feel like it continues, the, the heart of it kind of grows each, uh, each movement of the film until the very end where it's like, you know, the heart of the Grinch grew three sizes that day. <laughs> um, and like everybody ends up in a much more healthy and emotionally stable place. And then they were and a kinder place. Like everybody's mm-hmm. a much kinder person at the very end of this movie than they were at the beginning, which I think is great too. And so, um, and part of that is the kind of, in many ways, the rejection of all the things that they thought were going to be important to them. Like, yeah. you know, being a rock star was not important. Being, you know, um, all of that stuff, you know, uh, having the right boyfriend or the right girlfriend or any of those things, like the lessons they learn help them see what the things that are really important. And then on top of that, that in the end, it's the people around us that are important and how we treat them. Yeah. So, um, and at least the three characters that we care about, I think, the most in the film, which are Knives and and Ramona and Scott are all the ones who learn those lessons and kind of come away from the film uh, much better people than when the movie started, which is, is a nice place to end. And so um, I'm hard-pressed to not give this five stars, but I'll give it four and a half out of five because um, it's just continuing to grow on me every time I've seen it. And, um, yeah, I love it. So... Um, before we get out of here, though, Christy, it's time, as always, for some recommendations. Oh, I've got a good one this time. So I have been watching some of the more recent Netflix original series. And uh, actually, one that I ran across by accident and said, huh, that's kind of a cute name. I wonder what this is about. I ended up really, really getting emotionally invested in it, and now I can't wait for season two. I recommend watching Never Have I Ever on Netflix, which is a coming-of-age story. Um, it's relatable because it's something that obviously we all go through with the puberty and early high school era in our lives and trying to not only become more mature in general, but then dealing with the, you know, dating and everything and then parents expectations. But the main character is actually an Indian girl. And her um, 
family life is a bit difficult. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm not going to spoil it. But she's dealing with some really tough stuff for being a freshman in high school and then also just wants to be considered normal. And so it's it's really um, irreverent and funny, but then also has that emotional depth to it. So I really recommend watching Never Have I Ever on Netflix. Nice, nice. Uh, once we get moved, uh, I might uh, have some more time for watching shows. It's been so crazy for us. Um, but yeah, I'm sure. I did get a chance to read a brand new Star Wars book that we're actually going to be covering here. Uh, not the next week because we're going to take it off because I'm moving. Um, but the next week we're coming back and I recommend that you read Poe Dameron Freefall. And I'm not going to tell you my rating or why you should read it or anything, but I do think, and I don't say this about every Star Wars book, I think this one is worth reading and you're going to want to have read it so you can listen to Christy and I break it down because it's going to be a lot of fun. So you would say you were free falling. Yes. Because uh, <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> I can't help Absolutely. it. Uh, great, great poll. Great poll. Glad you went there. Um, You're welcome. Normally, I'm the one who has to sing, so that's that's awesome. Uh, I know I choose the right co-host for a reason. So. <laughs> um, Chrissy, uh, when you're not getting down with Sex Bomb a Bomb, uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and for now, still TikTok, at Bespin Bell. And I do a couple of other shows. I do an awesome show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabres and Spells. And I'm hoping maybe she'll let me cover Umbrella Academy Season 2. I'm going to make her watch it. Just wait and see and uh, and then i also do a show called planet leia on the Fanthatracks network where it's five women from around the world covering star wars awesome uh well you can find me here on the network doing the orb with chris jones when we get a chance we talk about star trek deep space nine uh, i'll be back on literary trek soon so you can check that out uh i'm also uh doing two shows on the nerd party network one is called Outpost. I'm doing that with Drea Kaufman. We're talking about Harry Potter each and every week. We're going one chapter at a time, and we are in the Deathly Hallows, and it is getting real, folks. Uh, also doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we're talking about Star Wars each and every week. We have a blast just picking out something we've been thinking about in Star Wars uh, every week and, and, and hanging out and talking about it. So, uh, and um, yeah, so find me on all of those shows. Uh, but, uh, you know what? Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs> <laughs>